BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. This podcast is a member of the Voices of Wrestling podcasting network. Visit VoicesOfWrestling.com to hear the rest of our great podcasts as well as show reviews, columns, opinions, and updates across the world of wrestling. To the highway in a brand new day. Open the Voice Gate for February 16th, 2021. We are members of the Voices of Wrestling Podcast Network. You can find us on the Voices of Wrestling feed, or you can find us on our own dedicated RSS feed on all podcast platforms and applications. You can follow us on Twitter at Open Voice Gate. If you would like to donate to the show, click the link in the show notes. It'll take you to our red circle landing page, and you click the red box that says Sponsor This Podcast. You could do a one-time or reoccurring donation. No obligation whatsoever, but I would like to thank our previous donors. I'm one of your hosts. It's your old pal, Iron Mike Spears. Joined, as always, by Case Lowe, my co-host and good friend. And Case, how is the cold season treating you right now in Dragon Gate? I thought you meant the weather. I thought this was going to be a Chicago snow discussion. Uh, We can talk about weather here. I mean, I have have Texas weather updates as well. Well, I, I will say, as it pertains to Dragon Gate, I felt like I was forgetting to do something all weekend because there wasn't a show and it was kind of stressing me out because I, it's, you know, I have a a big to-do list. I'm not a big calendar guy. I've got in my notes app though, Monday through Sunday and kind of what I need to do that day. And that's been, that's kind of how I keep organized. Uh, You know, I, I had the Dragon Gate USA show that I need to watch in my notes, but I I didn't have a Dragon Gate show and it was playing with my head all weekend. I, it really bothered me. So I'm excited that we'll get some Dragon Gate shows this weekend. As of the time we're recording this, at least at the start of the podcast, we do not have those cards. But once they are announced, we will have a brief discussion about them on Twitter at Open Voicegate. As for the cold season in Chicago, uh, look, Sunday was Valentine's Day. Saturday night, I thought I had lined up a hinge date for Valentine's Day. 
got ghosted pretty bad, hurt my feelings more than I'd like to admit, and there was snow, literally, this is a shoot brother, up to my head on the sidewalks in Chicago today as I went to the grocery store to get some essentials. You know, I, I'm trying to remember what I did for Valentine's Day, which tells you I didn't do anything, but I'm lucky for where I live that I am on the right side of the mountains. So for people who don't live in the United States, uh, the Appalachian Mountains go from Georgia up into Pennsylvania and New York. Like it is a very wide mountain chain and there's a lot of different parts of it. Where I live is right on what's called the foothills, which means that there I am at an elevation that's not as high. So anything that has to hit me, like I might get this weather tomorrow night. But all I had was enough rain that they sent out the pothole and sinkhole crews in my area where it is something where I like hear from you. I hear from rich and friends and family that are in Chicago. And I'm just like, Holy crap that that looks like you're on indoor, not indoor. Uh, forgot the, the planet. I don't watch star Wars stuff anymore, but the one from this, uh, empire strikes back. I'm sorry, but, uh, and why don't you watch star Wars stuff anymore? Are you upset about like a female lead character or something? No, I just grew up, and I decided to follow other things. <laughs> yeah, I cover wrestling now, you idiot. <laughs> but then I would talk to like my friends and families in Texas, and wow, just like all my thoughts are out to everyone there. It's just a state that's uniquely not suited for uh, winter weather, and it's not like a state a, that's not like a comment about oh, the South doesn't know how to deal with weather. No, Texas, you don't expect to have it, so you don't have your houses have that kind of insulation. There's no reason to keep extra salt trucks in Houston or Dallas. And the one thing I'll say is Texas is dumb enough to have their own electric grid. And that's an issue when stuff like this happens. So it's just, it's a remarkable like feat of nature that this happened. And it's sad. And I'm just, you know, I'm glad that everyone I've checked in with is holding up. And that's all that one can hope for right now. Yeah, it's awful in Texas. Chicago I guess, luckily, but also unfortunately knows how to deal with this because it happens every year. I've lived here four years now. My freshman year of college, there really wasn't a ton of snow, but pretty much every day from February through the second week in May, it was like 36 degrees and rainy. It was as depressing as it could possibly get. My sophomore year was the polar vortex, which, you know, not a ton of snow, but I, I do remember walking to a subway across the street from me the the restaurant to get a meatball sub which mike do you know my subway order by by the by uh by chance do you know what i get at subway i'm guessing it's a meatball sub because you just mentioned that i did but specifically it is a foot-long meatball sub on white bread not toasted no cheese put meatballs on bread and slide it down the counter are you okay <laughs> it's one of my worst qualities but it's it's my drink. It's not my drink. It's my meal. It's what I really like. I mean, to be fair, when I go to Subway, which is not very often, but I have gone recently, I get the uh, the half the half foot with uh, turkey breast. Just pile on the baby spinach, put oil and vinegar on it, put it on Italian herbs and cheese, and I'm good to go. I see. I don't want to. I don't want to do all that. There's too much there. I don't. Like spinach is good for you. No, that's fine. I, look, I <laughs> young boy's trying to drop a few pounds. All right, I've been looking at myself lately. It's like, oh, quarantine not doing me any favors right now. Uh, so some baby spinach will be coming into my diet very shortly. But yeah, I I have a, a subway meal that a psychopath serial killer would order. I know it's dangerous that that's what I do, but I do remember 
risking it all and about a negative 45 degree wind chill to go get that football or that that footlong meatball sub on white no cheese not toasted and then last year it only snowed really hard once and it snowed the night that I was going on my first date in quite a long time and I was going to meet this girl at kind of like a like a coffee shop but they had food and it was a real pain to get to from where I lived because I I could either take a train and then take a super long walk or I could take a bus and then a short walk, but I, I went to go take the bus, but they were all basically not running because of the snow. I went to take a train, and I took the train to where I needed to be, but it was like a 15-minute walk in this crazy, dark, snowy night, and so I tried to Uber from the train stop to the restaurant, but then the Uber took so long to get there. I'm a very punctual person. I'm never late to anything. I showed up nearly an hour late to this date and I felt awful about it. And it, oh my God, I still am so uncomfortable. And then it was like a small coffee house where I came barreling into it with all my snow and my wet shoes or whatever. I was like, I'm here, I'm here, I, are, are you okay? Uh, <laughs> that was a rough night. I mean, I, it's one of those things that like, after that happens, you're like, okay, I know that unless there's like some crazy spark we're just gonna have a cup of coffee and i'm never gonna see you again and it's very and it's one of those things that i could put myself into their shoes going like okay the weather i can be i could account for that i'm not being flaked out on but at the same time i'm like an hour and then you're just like in a bad mood and it's just it's not a good way to to get to know anyone especially someone that you've talked to on an app only really you, you know, know th- that night we ended up actually having a lot of fun. She came back to my apartment and I'm thinking like, Oh my God, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. Now I, I, I can't tell all of this story because it, it veers into a shocking direction. Uh, that is unfortunately not very sexual, but we ended up, we watched two movies at my apartment. We had this great night. And then, uh, the, the departure is where perhaps things went wrong. And uh, we ended up seeing each other two more times. And by the third time we were, both mutually ready to part ways. Uh, we saw that this had run its course and and we were done with this situation. The situation on Saturday night, you know, Valentine's Day fell on a Sunday. I had Monday off because it was President's Day. It's like, oh my God, this this could not have worked out better. It happened within a span of like 10 minutes. I, I, get, a, I get a hinge message and this girl is very, very forward about let's hang out on Valentine's Day giving me compliments, which made me uncomfortable because she was so straightforward about her compliments and she was very funny. She is, again, the one that initiated plans to hang out on Valentine's Day. And then when she did that, we kind of went off into like a... uh, We veered into another direction. We started talking about another topic in our little text thread. And then by the time I circled back to, hey, so when do you want to hang out tomorrow? That was the last message I ever got from her. She, She ghosted me. And like I said... It hurt more than I'd like to admit because I was kind of excited. Yeah, it's it it's something that like I think back on that I'm going to, like think back on like how dating was before apps and like OkCupid and things like this, and then like explaining it to the future. Like okay, like I I have family friends who have kids now, and I'm like imagining like being one of like the single friends, I'm, like oh so how is dating now? It's just like trying to like explain how ridiculous it is and especially like right now like the worst time in the world well uh, exactly recent memory i you know i've obviously taken covid very seriously i think people that listen to this show weekly have gotten that 
I my birthday was on Friday and I had two friends wear masks and they kind of dropped by unexpectedly and I was like oh shit like come on up like I'll wear a mask we'll spread out and kind of do like a triangle in my studio apartment but like I would like to see people because I really haven't I mean, we're approaching a year where I really haven't been around people and a few weeks ago I got bored and I was like well you know I I, I was watching the Super Bowl actually and it became a pretty boring game pretty quickly and I was like you know what I'll do to entertain myself let's download Hinge and see what this is like this is a new app for me I've never been on it before horribly confusing at first the layout is not great but it has at least been nice to uh send some messages into the void and have a human respond because you know i live alone and although i talk to people with my job and i talk to mike every week and i you know my other podcast i'm doing at least one interview every week and i've still got zoom classes for another semester it there are times even though i like being alone where it's increasingly lonely and it seems like every time we get good COVID news about a vaccine or resistance to it or whatever, in America at least, I almost feel like it's one step forward, two steps back most of the time. And it's tough to see the light at the end of that tunnel just in terms of life returning to where I would like to be able to eat inside of a restaurant and not feel guilty at some point within the next calendar year. And when that starts feeling like a daunting task, then it's like, oh, let me go to a dating app real quick and see if another human wants to interact with me. And I have met some very nice people on this app. And at some point, because again, I live alone and I am in the grocery store once a week for about 15 minutes, I'm pretty positive I don't have COVID and I would be really willing to take a risk at this point to see another person assuming they don't have COVID. Yeah, I feel like that it's something that we all have our mental tolerance Oh, and some people cope with it better than others, but like everyone kind of gets to a point where it's like, okay, if you're someone who takes this seriously and you're someone that has the availability that you're not having to go outside normally, it, it, it does get on, it does like great on you, like on a certain level. And it, it, it's something that like, in a way, uh, like I was actually talking to one of my best friends on the phone and we were talking and he brought up, uh, so over the like, like we only check in with each other like every few months right now whereas we usually see each other usually about several times a month but he, the, he brought up like oh have you uh started any hobbies and i'm like met hobbies man i'm trying to stay alive out here. <laughs> hobbies i'm uh, watching drag at usa every week <laughs> well i mean like that's, that's why i said like, like he is a wrestling fan so it's like yeah no and he knows like this kind of thing i do like keeping portions of my life very separate and compartmentalized so it's not necessarily the things that happen with with like my friends in my area but it brought up there is like so you decided to watch a promotion that you really loved and then you ended up brutally hating uh are you okay man and i'm like i think i am i don't notice anything different than usual (laughs) but it's just one of those things i feel like that i wonder how much like the idea of positive human connections will come out of this but then then i look at the rest of the world events i wonder is it actually going to happen or is it just like false glimmers of hope well, I will say this, and and I unfortunately can't speak for everybody. I will exit COVID whenever that happens. Uh, I'm I'm hoping uh, I, there are rumors that I might be eligible for a vaccine in about six weeks from now, which I'm very excited at the idea. Of. Oh hell yeah! Yeah, uh, thank you to the shoot job. Uh, I know I just have learned a lot about myself and about humanity and what I would like to see going forward from this. I 
unfortunately get the impression that most of America is looking at this as an annoyance that they are going to be happy to leave in the past. And obviously I, you know, I would love to see live music again. It would be phenomenal, but I, this has been, obviously, you know, this happens at a very influential time in my life. I had just turned 21 when COVID hit, I just turned 22 and we're still living through it. But yeah, I mean, it's just incredible to think of the mental toll that this has taken on people. And I think about like the weird relearning curve that, I'm going to have with being social again, because again, I'm someone that's, you know, I, I have a tremendous friend group. I, I have a very healthy amount of friends, I think, but I am certainly prone to wanting to be left alone from time to time. And I've had an entire year to do that. And, and almost relearning social cues is going to be a real interesting thing coming out of this. But I, I, you know, I, I would certainly hope people have learned to uh, not, take very simple things for granted that not only that we, you know, weren't that we were taking for granted previously, but just we had never had to think about this idea of like, oh, I can't go into a restaurant right now. Like that was sounded fucking insane 18 months ago, but it's been the reality for a year now. And it has uh, certainly, unfortunately, hardened me to an extent seeing the way that people have failed to react to it. But in a way, it has made me, I think, a much more empathetic person, which is good. Empathy is good. Empathy you know? is good. Empathy is good. It's a useful thing, and hopefully more people will take after you and get more empathetic about this. But, yeah, so as we said at the top, there's really not a lot of Dragon Gate-related stuff to talk about this week. Uh, we put out some, uh, we put out a call for questions, so we have some topics we'll be talking about. And, uh, yeah, uh, the shows will come back on the 21st in Kyoto. They're doing two shows in three days in Kyoto, and on the 21st and on the 23rd, they have a show in Kobe at the at a different arena because Sumbo Hall is booked. They don't list it on the Gay Hour website as being on air. However, the Drangate Network thing is on air, so we'll have a lot of stuff to talk about next week. But uh, as we are kind of in this uh, quiet period, we have some questions, some topics that to talk about for a little bit this week, Case. And the first one that I got that I feel like this is just overall an interesting question think about comes from Peskisk or bust on twitter and that is who will take the Dreamgate title off of shun and when will that happen so case well, let's forecast out who do you see taking the belt away from shun skywalker and when do you see it happening that's an interesting question let me say up top that i have not seen any of these i do not know what is coming down the pipeline Shun's title reign is an interesting one. We kind of alluded to this last week that the problems we predicted with Masquerade, which are certainly not in-ring related, but rather from a charisma and mic standpoint, a, a promo standpoint, you know, they, they're a unit of guys that can't talk, and although they can only, you know, they, they get over to a tremendous extent from their in-ring work, that is not all that matters in Drangate, and I think we have seen that happen with Shun. And I will have more on this next week, but I think he is losing the title at Champion Gate. Okay, that's interesting. So you think Kaido Ishida will win it at the beginning of March? I am leaning that way right now. About 60-40 Ishida, but again, that's 60%. The favorite right now for me is Kaito Ishida. So I, I see your logic in that definitely, I think, is if there is an option out there if they wanted to get off the Shun Skywalker 
a bus that is a logical exit you are kind of putting it onto someone who's getting his first title shot so this is so it's kind of remarkable like thinking about like ada won with zero keys in his history and now the champion that two champions later than kaido ishida would and it would be in his hometown too um for me i'm because of everything they did not have that usual uh february cork and title defense and that makes me wonder if that if he's gonna get i think i'm 50 50 with kaido ishida retaining so he gets his second key but i don't think he will be champion for much longer after that i don't know with what they're gonna do with the cage if he's in the cage with the title belt and that's put at stake i could see him losing it at the cage i could see them pulling that but i also could see them if they decided to have this to, to make up the fact that they did not have a february cork and title offense i could see any time before basically the start of king of gate that shun skywalker loses the title too and it's a shame that like i'm doubting ishida because i feel like ishida would be the perfect person if it wasn't for the particulars of the situation right yeah i think that's that's a fair way of putting that so if i were to guess so our past like five champions were uh ada naruki doi Benkei, Pac, and Masato Yoshino. And you like you look at that, you look at who hasn't had it. Question goes towards Yamato. Like, as much as I don't, as Yamato as Dreamgate champion does not necessarily enthuse me with my history of thinking of Yamato as a Dreamgate champion. He's been away from the belt since when was it? Mochizuki won it against him at uh Dangerous Gate twenty seventeen, September of two thousand seventeen. So we're coming up on four years without him having the title run. Yeah. And I could see that happening because that also that also means that if you want to finally blow off him and Kai, you can do a title match that way. Kai has never had a Dreamgate title shot, and it's kind of suspicious at this point that he hasn't had one. So I could see if – I assume Yamato's going to be in the cage of Kai. I could see Yamato winning the title in the cage if that's an option. If that's not it, I could see that happening sometime before uh, King of Gate. I think that it – I think Yamato is going to be walking into uh, Kobe World, at least night one of Kobe World uh, 2021 as Dreamgate champion. It is really hard to counter that because you look at the units right now and Ata, I, I think, is a safe bet to not dethrone Shun. They're giving the, the title match to Ishida, which, I, again, I, I legitimately think at this point he'll come away with a win, but that's by no means a guarantee uh, Boku, you know, Shimizu is not challenging for the title, at least in this current state. I would love to see a Doi versus Skywalker match, but I don't think oh, yeah. Doi would win that. Has it, well, I, I, let me look that up. I don't know if we've ever had a Doi versus Shun Skywalker singles match, and that is that is something that sounds very fresh and very exciting. And then you look at, you know, just the other guys involved. KZ is obviously a threat. You've got the history of KZ versus Skywalker at World 2019, but KZ won that match, so I don't see the story of those two getting... I, I guess I see the story of those two getting even, rather, rather than KZ going 2-0 mm -hmm. in that spot. You mentioned Yamato. That's a safe one. Yoshino's out of the question. It'd be, uh, you know, Kondo versus Skywalker would be cool as hell, but Kondo's not winning the belt. Uh, Mochizuki versus Skywalker. If assuming Skywalker beats Ashida, I would really like to see them do a Mochizuki versus Skywalker match. 
that is something that you could put at Dead or Alive if you wanted to do a Dreamgate match underneath the cage. Those two had what I thought was one of the 10 best matches of 2019 at King of Gate 2019 in May of that year. That match was unbelievable and, and underrated. I might have been the only person that voted for that in my top 10 that year. Did you have it? I didn't. No, I did not. But I think I had that, I think, at four and a quarter. But that's probably in the moment. But looking back on it, that was such a remarkable thing, especially with the top rope. Ashla winning the match. Yes. Yeah, there is a bunch of crazy stuff in that match. And, and just to circle back real quick, Doi and Skywalker have not had a singles match, and that needs to change. That would be a lot of fun. So That sounds like a dangerous gate match. If he holds the title through, then <laughs> yeah. I mean, Mr. Oda. <laughs> yeah, that uh, that is something that I would I would like to see. It's I guess, it, you know, it's crazy. You look at their cage matches. They haven't touched since 2019, November of 2019, just because... Shun wasn't around last year, then Shun came back and Doi got hurt. They really have not been in the ring much together at all. Only 31 matches between house shows and televised appearances. Since Which is not a lot. No, not at all. That's since 2017, so they didn't touch for the first year of Shun's career, really. So, anyways, uh, I think Yamato is a is a super safe bet. That unit with Yamato, Dragon Kid, Ben K, and Akuda, as it stands right now, is super weird. I don't really know what to make of it, but I do think they get a built-in, an automatic sense of direction if Yamato becomes Dreamgate champion while being the face of that unit. Yeah, and you brought Mochizuki. If this was a cyber fight promotion, Mochizuki's winning that title, right? <laughs> and, you know, I look, do I want Dragon Gate to be sold a cyber fight? No, but if that's the result, I- I'd be open to uh, being talked into it. I, I may not be a 50-year-old wrestler. No, that's not fair for me to say about Yun, Yun Akiyama. Never mind. You, you, you can see my logic about the statement I was about to make there, Case. Look, I've I've never been a Mudo guy. I, I'm not even a big prime Mudo fan, and I have not had a chance to watch that Noah show yet. I, you know, you know the, the sickening thing is, not only is Akiyama the DDG champion now, sorry, spoilers, but get over it, I am kind of becoming a DDT guy again. Now, I can't do their comedy nonsense. Their booking, I've never totally been able to understand. Like, Dragon Gate's booking patterns, I understand. I know what those cards look like. Every DDT cork, and I'm like, wait, what's happening? Who's this now? Why are they doing this? But I've really enjoyed the in-ring in DDT lately, which makes me sick to my stomach, because I wrote that promotion <laughs> off a few years ago, but... Uh, you know, I mean, Noah's booking is atrocious, but Nakajima is one of the best wrestlers in the world. Shiozaki was one of the best wrestlers in the world last year, and Kano can deliver the hit, certainly. But I'm kind of thinking I'm going to be watching a lot of DDT this year. If they're pushing Sakaguchi and they're pushing Akiyama, I'm going to have to do it. You, you know, you bring up DDT, you know, because of the, we've had this this dead period, this is actually something that popped in my head. So you've been watching more DDT. I've been watching a lot of Tokyo Joshi Pro. So it's fu- it's funny you mentioned that because I was going to talk to you in a few days. I, I would like to at least watch the hyped Joshi stuff in 2021. Has there been anything from either Stardom or Tokyo Joshi Pro or I, I guess elsewhere? I don't know what, what exactly you watch that I need to check out right now. So I'm a Joshi Normie. I'm not Aaron Bentley. I do not watch uh, <laughs> Seedling or Marvel. <laughs> well, we both know we're going to get to this. Uh, Tokyo Joshi Pro just has like this very, it's a very pleasant show. They Actually, the one show I'd say that was pretty remarkable was their Idion show on, on January 4th. This was just their second Cork and Hall show. And one of like my, my 
favorite wrestlers, but I'm not saying that that I think that she's a great wrestler. But she's one of my favorites. Is and you maybe can guess one goes is is Yuki Kemafuku, and she had a title match on the Positive Chain show that was really good that I really enjoyed. But I also find Yuki Kemafuku very funny. Like, how familiar are you with Kamiyu other than me making oblique references? Oh, literally nothing. Okay, so she is the the tallest person in this promotion by a good margin. She is a gravure model, which is a beauty slash, like, pinup model in Japan. Uh, she spent a significant amount of time in Ohio, living in Ohio as, like, a transfer student. <laughs> and and, and, her, and, and, and she, used to, she was the one that used to come out to Old McDonald Had a Farm. Like, if you've seen people, like, tweet about that, but they changed her theme now, that she is the international princess champion. And her new theme is called Flaky Queen, because that's kind of her personality, in a way. But she had, like, this really fun match. I, I, I'm going to mispronounce the, her opponent's name, so I'm going to look it up right now. And this is how much of a Joshi Normie I am. I did watch all of the AEW Women's Eliminator Tournament first round matches, and it it was a it was a fun time watching that. But so the person that she faced off against, God, I wish that I was able to like read this site a lot easier. But I had to scroll for a second. It was gosh, how many like things have happened since then? It is Mirai uh, Mayumi, and it was like a really interesting match because Mirai Mayumi is act is like a big wrestling fan. But Yuki Kamafuku was like, I am my own person. I don't watch wrestling that much. It was a really kind of cool thing. And then the match before that was actually really exceptional. Uh, Miyu Yamashita and Makito versus Saki Sama and Mei San Michelle. And I know that you aren't a Gato Move watcher, but the person who plays Mei San Michelle in Gato Move is Mei Saruga. And she is really an exciting wrestler to watch. So I, I, I'm not going to just throw gato move on you but if you watch this positive chain show from tokyo joshi pro from the 11th you might really you, you might pick up some stuff or you might go like okay this promotion is just not for me that's that's huge i will i will check that out my only contemporary joshi knowledge is that for the past year ddt has been booking kazusada haguchi yukio sakaguchi and saki aki in a trio and eruption Yes, and Higuchi and Sakaguchi are my two guys in DDT that I wish would leave. I've always been a big Sakaguchi fan, and and Higuchi is universally loved. And they threw them in there with with Aki, and I love this trio. They are they they do, I think the the DDT flavor better than anybody because you know it's a it's an intergender trio, and I think they play into that a little bit. But when they get a chance to go out there and have a great match, I. I made sure to watch everything of theirs that made tape last year, with the exception of the empty arena shows where I totally tuned out, but other than Dragon Gate, I totally tuned out. But once fans came back, that latter half of the year, I watched everything they did. I really, really liked that act. Uh, didn't they win the uh, KOD six-man titles from Stronghearts? Yes, that is how I got turned on to them, because I was watching the Stronghearts stuff, and then I saw what they were doing there, and I liked that, and I followed it throughout the remainder of the year. Yeah, no, no, that, that all lines up then. Uh, well, reaching back, this is kind of something we talked about a little bit earlier. This is from Regrads on Discord. He had, or they had two questions. I'm just going to take care of the first one right here. And it's about Shun Skywalker and about Masquerade in a way. And their question is, I love pretty much all the DG veterans. And they are all great talkers. And we take it for granted when looking at Masquerade and their development. Were they all great talkers to begin with, or is this a product of being around for 20 years' experience? 
Mike, this is probably more of a question for you. I think you're a little bit more tapped in to this side of things. Uh, the only thing I can really add to this is that specifically for Shima and Mochizuki by the time he hits Torimon, they are so naturally charismatic that my assumption is that they've been good promos from the start. I mean, Shima in 1998 Michinoku Pro is one of the most charismatic wrestlers I've ever seen. Again, you watch Mochizuki in War, maybe not so much, but by the time he gets to Torimon in M2K forms, he kind of has his act down. Yeah, and it's something that, like, those two had natural charisma, or at least they tapped into something. Like, an interesting person to talk about with this is Naruki Doi, who basically, he existed up until Blood Generation, then he played a heel through Muscle Outlaws, and then World 1, but he was not known as being, like, a specifically charismatic person. Like, he would cut good promos, but not as specifically charismatic. But when he turned heel after uh, World 1 International, he really kind of tapped into it through Mad Blanky and Zerk, where he became one of the funnier promos in the company. And a lot of it was that he would just rile up the crowd by going, oi, 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 nashi, oi, oi, oi. And he, the crowd kind of really got on his side, and that's when the Doi-chan kind of chant started up there. So it, some of it is natural some of it is developed uh yamato was known as someone who just talks a whole lot but the crowd kind of got into him but for the most part a lot of for like the younger wrestlers they try to develop it or at least kind of uh shepherd them i would say as i do like a hand gesture as i'm like shepherding sheep but a lot of that is through prime zone and a lot of the younger more talented mic workers used to be the interviewers and the pa for prime zone like KZ was it Kaido Ishida was it, UT was it for a long time, Katoka, and the most recent one, Case, you know who the last interviewer was for Prime Zone before it went dark? I, I don't think so, just because it's been so long now. Kota Minenora. Interesting. So they were trying to build up Kota Minenora to be a mic talker. So. I, I Minora, you know, he closed out the July 12th, 2020 Osaka show where he got the big pinfall in the main event. That's what really uh, kickstarted his push. He closed out that show with a promo, I believe. It's either that show or the next month that he did that. And he is kind of the guy when I've asked people in Japan that speak the language, you know, how they're progressing. I always specifically ask about him because if there's going to be someone from that unit that takes on the role as the, the microphone leader, it's going to be him. But I have have not heard any updates as to his rapid progression as a promo. Yeah, so, like, that's the person to keep an eye on. It's just, you know, some people are naturally charismatic, and some people are good with a microphone, and some people aren't, and it's easier now because there's not someone who's willing to kind of bite your head off if you're a bad promo. Well, yeah, I mean, that's, uh, you know, I was going to bring this up, so I'll make this real quick, but, yeah, that was always, you know, in particular the issue with T-Hawk was great wrestler, yes. I think Western fans responded to him way more because of his in-ring, but not only could never cut a promo, but would specifically be called out by Shima and Mochizuki about how he could not cut promos and how it hindered his growth, and we saw that with Ata as well. And the one millennial that never really had an issue with that was Al Lindemann, who, even dating back to his days as Yuga Hayashi, I mean, I knew from the start. I watched his debut match. I said that person is going to be an important player in wrestling in one way or another. Did not think Zero One Junior Heavyweight Champion was going to be that important piece of the puzzle, but sure enough, that's where we are. But from the jump, everybody was like, oh my god, he can go in the ring with Shima in a promo battle. Like, holy shit, this kid has balls. And, uh, you know, it kind of worked out for him, kind of didn't. 
Yeah, and it's one of those things that for some of the younger wrestlers, they need to have like they they need to have the uh, flyer crash happen to them. They need to kind of be shoved out of the nest and see. And I mean, it's not like we need to have everyone be really funny or charismatic promos. Dragon Kid's appeal is that he's kind of the most extra and annoying person ever. Like there's ways you can appeal as a microphone worker in Dragon Gate without being like the super funny Doi Yoshi combo. Yeah, for sure. And uh, the next question here, and this can go, go to a topic we were talking about beforehand. This is also from our grads is what was the opinion of Michinoku pro when crazy max was built up the reputation with him in Japan. But when Toriyaman Japan formed Michinoku pro seemed to suffer a great th- decline. Any correlation between fans jumping to the new hot promotion. And the reason I brought this up is, uh, this is a Lucharess, and this is a part of the tree that we've talked about before, the, the giant Lucharess tree. And Michinoku Pro is a big part of it, and so was Crazy Max in 98 and 99 before the launch of Tormon Japan. Yeah, I can't speak to Japanese fans perhaps abandoning Michinoku Pro for Torimon. That certainly seems like something that could have happened. I, I don't know for sure, and I don't know if Mike knows my opinion on Crazy Max and Michinoku Pro is that it was fucking awesome. That 1998 stuff that's out there and into early 99, it's it's so impressive because Shima's really the guy that jumps off the page there. Fuji's there, Sua's there, you probably get some Taru as well, but you watch Shima, even dating back to 1998, and he jumps off the page as the next evolution. I mean, he's kind of doing the Taka Michinoku act, but, you know arguably doing it better i mean i just i I watched some taka this weekend for michinoku pro and i was like oh my god i forgot how good taka was at one point but yeah it's it's something that i'm a big fan of i was talking i think with rob naylor recently about how i weirdly think perhaps the two most singular interesting years of shima's career are 2018 when he jumped to wrestle one and became a freelance guy and 1998 when he's in Michinoku Pro. And obviously the 20-year gap in between is great, but just in terms of, like, wait, what's this guy doing? This is super compelling stuff. For me, it's probably 2018 and 1998. So a lot of the stuff that I've heard about this comes from Jay's old uh, iHeartDG podcasts, and when specifically when he was talking about the lead-up to Torimon Japan. And I've watched some Michinoku Pro that's a... That's a spot that I'm trying to fill out slowly and something that I really love the style. Everything I've seen about Michinoku Pro, I've absolutely loved. But the company of Michinoku Pro, for one, it needs to be realized the fact that they are in the Tohoku region around Sendai. They are not a Tokyo company. Like Michinoku Pro, man, like it was originally called Northeast Wrestling because it was based in Northeast Japan. And when they lost Kaintai DX, when all of them left and most of them went to WWF. Kaz Hayashi, of course, went to WCW. That was a huge hole because whenever they would come into Tokyo, people wanted to go see Kaintai DX versus the remainder of the Michinoku Pro home army. And when they lost Kaintai DX, and the thing about this that I don't think that people, unless you go back and watch Michinoku Pro, you don't know, Kaintai Deluxe was a heel unit. It was a huge heel unit. So there was a huge void there. And great sasuke brought in Torimon, brought in crazy max and he formed like this heel unit called sasuke gumi that crazy max was a part of so they filled in a void there and when Torimon formed like Torimon west japan like different parts of the country in a lot of ways but i think it did help it did hurt 
Michinoku probe. I can't definitively say like that is one of the major reasons Michinoku's pros declined because Michinoku pros decline started before Torimon came in when they lost all of Kaintai Deluxe. Yeah, it's weird looking at the massive turnover from shows in 97 compared to even shows in, in 98 and 99. It's a totally different roster. And that obviously had a uh, the the people leaving had a bigger effect on the state of that promotion than the people coming in. In the case of Shima and Crazy Max, yeah, and it's one of those things that you kind of got to see in some ways the two big branches of the Lucharest tree kind of form there. I mean, of course, the start of that Grand Hamada and Hamada's Universal, but most of the people who went from Universal ended up in Michinoku Pro, and then you had Yoshihiro Asai, who was already Ultimo Dragon that time did his own thing and went more into WAR, went into New Japan with the Super J Cup or the Super J Crown, and then also into Mexico and the United States. So it was kind of like reforming in a way that it all really starts with Gran Hamada. Yeah, Mike, are there more questions related to this topic or do you want to have a brief Hamada discussion right now? That's the only topic I came in with was I wanted to briefly talk about Gran Hamada. Well, I, I brought this question so that'd be a good segue into Hamada. Great. So. Okay, I, was, I wasn't sure if there was anything down the road. Um, Yeah. I I want to talk about Hamada. I've been watching a ton of him recently for greatest wrestler ever reasons, and I, I want to try to steer the conversation in a different direction because I'm sure between me and Mike and Alan Forrell will have the where does Hamada fit in the top 100 wrestlers of all time discussion at some point. Uh, there's two things here that I want to hit on. One, it's interesting to me, Mike, that you consider Michinoku Pro to be a bit of a blind spot and... I wanted to point the listeners in this direction. I'll point you in this direction as well. It L- is- let me get my greatest wrestler ever a binder open so I can get some stuff down here for this. Go ahead. Yes. So on YouTube, and I will email, or I will not email, I will send Mike the link, <laughs> and Mike can put it in the episode description. There is, from the, the man, the myth, the immortal himself, Roy Lushier, a commercial tape of Michinoku Pro on YouTube, the Country of Lucha 1996 Hunting Spirit. And this covers essentially the back half, I think July through December of 1996 and Michinoku Pro, which I think is the best period of that promotion. And I, I, you know, Michinoku from, it begins in 93, I think from 94 through 97 is anything you can find is worth watching. But 96 in particular is just, it's phenomenal. So, on this tape, there are four consecutive matches that begins with Dick Togo and Men's Teo versus El Hijo Del Santo and Super Delphin. Now, that match is slightly clipped, but seeing Del Santo, he does an insane dive in this match that is that is well worth watching. And then from there, you go to November 12th, 1996. It is Hamada, Super Delphin, and Sasuke versus Dick Togo, Men's Teo, and the man that would later become Kaz Hayashi, a super fun six-man that I had not seen until this weekend when I was watching this tape. And it's, you know, a, a brilliant Grand Hamada performance. Shocking. Typically, every time he makes tape, it's a brilliant performance. There is the next match, the 10-man tag team elimination match. This is unfortunately slightly clipped, but it's Kai and Tai against Hamada, Grand Nanawa, Super Delphin, Great Sasuke, and Tiger Mask 4. This match rocks. And then it all leads to December 16th, 1996, Kai and Tai versus Hamada, Nanawa, Delphin, Sasuke, and Masato Yakashiji, Yakashiji rather, who is, for my money, one of the best babyfaces in pro wrestling history. 
I really wish wrestlers on the independents now would study what he does. I think they could learn a lot from Masato Yakashiji, but unfortunately, I don't think people are, are diving into these Michinoku tapes. Mike, this last match, this December 16th, 96 match, it is the best match in Michinoku Pro history. It is better. Really? It is better than the 10 10 96 these days tag. It's, I, I think it's the same guys. But it is. It, it's a better match. It is one of the hottest crowds I have ever seen. People are jumping up and down by the finish of this match, like hugging each other, jumping up and down. It's unbelievable how hot things are in this match. It is one of my favorite matches of all time. It is right on the cusp of being five stars, but because I had to think about it, it's four and three quarters. So there is kind of your jumping on point for Michinoku Pro, and I would be more than happy to give our listeners more prime era Michinoku pro recommendations, but uh, country of Lucha 1996 hunting spirit commercial tape on YouTube. that is what you want to watch. It's two hours of stuff that flies by, but the last hour is all hair pulling out. Oh my God, this wrestling is unbelievably great kind of stuff. So you like that more than the these days tag. Like I've seen the these days tag and I've seen all the crazy max stuff. I just haven't, gone back and watched this and of course i've been watching hamada's universal lately which i did not realize there was as much hamada's universal out there as there was there's a lot of that stuff on tape and in relative broadcast quality too i kind of thought it was mostly fan cams but if you dig deep you can find a lot of hamada's universal stuff which was essentially the predecessor to michinoku pro which was the predecessor to osaka pro and torimon and drangate and and uh, you know, I've got one more question to ask Mike about Hamada in a minute. But yes, this December 16th, 1996 match, it is my favorite match in the history of the promotion. I believe Alan Forel feels the same way. Years ago on the Voices of Wrestling forum, he put together a Michinoku Pro playlist of stuff that was out there to check out. And that was the the highlight. I mean, that it's just it's an unbelievably great match. Specifically, Hamada is brilliant and it. Dick Togo is great throughout this entire commercial tape. And, you know, obviously I hate what he's doing now, but Dick Togo, for those that don't know, was once a brilliant professional wrestler. So I would, I would point you in that direction. Uh, Is there anything you have to add on Michinoku pro before I go to another grand Hamada topic? Well, it's just Michinoku pro is just such a cool and different promotion. And it's very much a promotion of its time. I mean, 1996, you're talking about, when FMW was still really a thing and you're, you have the big two promotions and you have a lot of like scattered indies, WAR. And this is something that it's like an interesting time period that like, I don't listen to the show a lot, but whenever between the sheets has like a mid to late nineties, uh, pro section, I make sure to watch, listen to it just cause I find it all super compelling. So like all the names are very familiar with me. Of course, like the stuff with like the crazy max people, and I love Osaka Pro as well. It's just one of those things that, like, that particular, like, time period, like, this comp tape is perfect for someone like me because that gets the hits, and then I'll go and find other things from there. Yeah, there's a ton of Michinoku Pro out there for free, and I don't—I I, I feel like I'm really disconnected from a lot of wrestling bubbles right now. I don't really have a good feel for what people are watching and what they aren't, but I don't feel like people are necessarily diving into the Michinoku Pro archives right now. There's a lot of stuff on there on YouTube, let alone Daily Motion and, you know, the Ditch site and wherever else. There's a lot on YouTube that I 
I think is really enjoyable. And if you have any basic understanding of the way Drangate operates, you can parachute into a Michinoku Pro show from this era and you'll be able to figure it out very quickly, kind of what's going on and who's who and what roles they play. Because it's all, in a sense, very cyclical, which is why I think Gran Hamada is such an interesting wrestler. I am obviously a huge proponent of Tatsumi Fujinami. I think he's one of the five best wrestlers of all time. I think everything that we've seen in the New Japan Junior Heavyweight Division from Liger through the the peak in the early 90s to Ring of Honor, essentially copying that style in the U.S. Indies, I think it can all be traced back to Fujinami and his work as a junior heavyweight dating back to like 1977. I mean, Fujinami was awesome in what we have on tape from the 70s, whereas Gran Hamada, I think Mike, it's fair to say, is the godfather of this Luchoresu style that we love so much. Yeah, so Hamada is the person that crawled so Ultimate Dragon could run and all the others because he was a member of the New Japan Dojo, but was much too small. He begged and he went to Mexico and it completely changed his career before anyone else's career got changed by going into Mexico and he was sent into UWA, which isn't the exact predecessor to modern day AAA, but it did fill in that role as the number two promotion contrasting with at the time EMLL, but now CMLL. And he just kind of really kind of, uh, blossomed to the point that they started calling him grand Hamada, which in Spanish is the great Hamada. And ever since then he had this style. He came back. He was a part of the original UWF, which is wild. And then he, but his style was so different from Sayama and the rest of UWF. So he kind of did his own thing and he went to all Japan for a while. And then he formed his own version of universal, which is usually referred to as Hamada's universal or universal Lucha Libre, where, you know, most of the people that we were just talking about got their start there. Like Dick Toko got a start there. Men's Teho, uh, Takamichinoku, Kazayashi, Jensei Sasaki, Gato, Jado, they're all well, there. Gato and, well, Gato and Jado, I mean, they appeared as a part of uh, Takashi Puro Gundam in Jesus, did in, they? In New Japan, yeah, but they just were appearances there, and then they disappeared afterwards. Yeah, but the the point is, you know, Hamada's really the foundation for all this. Uh, one brief aside about Hamada's Universal. There was recently a TEW 2020 mod released for 1992, and they included Hamada's Universal in that database. And so I might be experimenting. The biggest waste of time ever playing as (laughs) Hamada's Universal Lucha Libre on a TEW save from 1992. But that popped me when I saw that the roster looked to be pretty accurate. And, you know, again, you know, early Sasuke before the mask, Gato, Jado, Hamada, obviously. Uh, Very entertaining. You mentioned Sayama. I want to point people to a match on New Japan World from April 13th, 1980. It was a New Japan promoted show in Mexico, and it is Hamada and Sayama versus Babyface and Pero Guayo. Two things I like here. One, it is footage from Mexico in 1980 that is crystal clear on New Japan World. My jaw dropped when I saw this footage, and I immediately wanted more early Mexican footage from the 80s because New Japan has to have it because they were airing stuff from MSG and from Mexico at this point on their TV show and there's this match and then on the show was an Anoki title defense and so they've got that on World I would love to see more of this again the footage was clear 
the match is really good. I mean, you see in 1980, Hamada is doing stuff that would fit in in 2021. He is as far ahead of his time as any wrestler I've ever seen. Yeah, and you had Pero Aguayo, who's one of, at least in my personal opinion, one of the best wrestlers from Mexico of all time. So it's it, it's something that like I might have to reactivate my New Japan account to get that match because how much I l- enjoy Hamada and especially early Sayama as well. Yeah, Sayama's super fun. And it's just, it's a cool match that I would have never guessed there was footage of and it made me want, obviously, all of Hamada stuff from Mexico. I would love to see Fujinami's run in the UWA. I've seen, I, I don't know if there's footage of it out there. If there is, I don't think I've seen it, but... You know, Fujinami's a guy that I've certainly considered in my greatest wrestler ever voting as a number one contender, and if we had that Mexico stuff there and I liked it, you know, we might be having a conversation. I think Fujinami's that good. But the other thing with Hamada, I I started watching so much of him because for some reason I was just under the impression that there wasn't a lot of Hamada footage out there, which is not true, I've learned, because he's got stuff on New Japan World there is an awesome Hamada match in all Japan. It's him, and I think it's Babyface against the Guerreros, Mondo and Chavo Sr. That match is from 1984 All Japan, and oh my god, did it kick ass. I mean, it is just another level of junior heavyweight wrestling so far ahead of what was going on in America at the time. And then you've got a lot of the stuff from Mexico in the late 80s and early 90s. Like I was saying earlier, there's a lot of Hamada's Universal stuff out there, which I didn't realize was so accessible until recently. And then you've got his Michinoku Pro Run in 95 and 96 and 97. There's a lot of Hamada out there that I mistakenly thought didn't exist on tape, and I'm really glad I sat down and made a note of it because the family tree, I think to some extent, is Hamada Ultimo Shima, and I'm kind of curious who you think is next in line. Is there anyone in wrestling right now that you see as being a otherworldly influential junior heavyweight? Just for Lucharas, right? Yeah, I yeah. Yeah, let's well if you if you have another one, I'd like to hear it, but specifically for Lucharas is I guess what I was asking. Well, I would think that the next evolution really came with Kota Ibushi if we're going to go down that line. But in Lucharess, boy, that's really interesting just because now how it's really contained now to Dragon Gate because Osaka Pro doesn't exist in the way it used to. DDT has its facets, but it's I wouldn't call it the uh, like a mainline thing. And then, of course, Secret Pace exists so they all can get outside the house and have a good time. So, honestly... I would think the next person would have been Masato Yoshino. And then after Masato Yoshino, uh, this is going to sound really bold. I think Ada gets the overall style of Lucharest more so than a lot of his contemporaries. At least what would be an evolution of it versus doing distinctly their own thing like like Keisuke Akuda and others, if that makes sense. I weirdly completely agree because I would even think like Yoshino and part of it's just his speed, which is probably not fair to compare people to that. But no one really does what Yoshino does, and I think he was so similar in class to Shima that, you know, you could certainly include him, and I wouldn't argue that. But in terms of a definitive style change, which I think happens from Hamada to Ultimo, and then from Ultimo to Shima, Eita is weirdly included, I, I, I guess because he took what Yoshino was doing with T2P, 
He added it to the modern Dragon Gate style, and you've seen that trickle-down effect with guys like KZ and UT now that are wrestling a style that Ato really brought to prominence in the summer of 2016. Yeah, and, and like that's a thing, and I think with Ada also, you have like this this person who is not a part of the family tree, not at all whatsoever, but has basically has some of like the more important matches, and is like it, it they're not part of the family tree, but they're the family friend in Jushin Thunder Liger, because Shima had the match in the Super J Cup, of course, Ada had the match there. There's the history between uh, Liger and Ultimo Dragon, and of course. Grand Hamada fits in there as well, and he's kind of a through line connecting all these people, if you really want to kind of distill it down to that. That is a tremendous point, and I weirdly think that strengthens Ada's case. If you have an opinion on this, if we're forgetting somebody, please tweet at us at OpenVoiceGate. Let us know who the, uh, I guess, the, the next crown holder in the lineage of Luchares is, and... Yeah, I, I don't know. The other point I wanted to make on that was, I guess if you expand it to just junior heavyweight wrestling, and I guess, you know, you can kind of draw the fork in the road there of the Hamada style versus the Fujinami style, which is purposeful because they came in together. Mm-hmm. The other side of things is, you know, I don't know. We haven't really tracked that lineage. I It's something I would like to sit down and do to kind of figure out just where things evolved. I am very curious to see within the next few years where that Darby Allen Hiromu kind of ragdoll reckless style goes, I would like Dragon to Dragon Lee. Dragon Lee, another one. Yeah. I would and I and I think Skywalker, Shun Skywalker was that. I don't think he's that anymore. I think he's grown out of that. But I think if you watch the first really three years of his career, kind of everything through that all Japan tag run he had, that was kind of his deal was like, oh, is Skywalker going to die in this match? Is he going to slip off the top <laughs> rope and fall on his head? Like, that was a legitimate fear that we had. I, I think he was kind of holding that lineage for a little bit, but he's evolved his style to something different. But just projecting out, you know, we obviously don't know what the future holds, but I, I, I'm very curious to see if kind of that next crop of guys looks at Hiromu, looks at Darby Allen, and they take that style and do what Ultimo did to what Hamada was doing and what Shima did to what Ultimo was doing. I would like to see if that is kind of what hits this next generation or if there's something else that that I'm missing that people really respond to in the future. Yeah, and the only person I would say within the Dragon System right now that's doing that, or the two people, are Sugi and, of course, La Estrella. Like, those are kind of, like, if you're going to go down that lineage, that's where you would really focus it there right yeah probably because i was trying to figure out where dia and astrea fit into this because yeah i mean you know dia was just unbelievable before he got injured i am i'm on record as saying the most exciting wrestler on the planet in 2020 not because he was having the best matches in the world that was you know shingo takagi and naruki doi and goshi ozaki to some extent but because Daya would be in the ring, and I'd be like, I, I literally don't know what his next move is going to be. He could do something I've never seen before, and Estrella kind of has that. And, I, you know, I don't know where they fit in in that lineage, but I think that's, you know, for dorks like us, I think mapping the lineage of junior heavyweight wrestling, at least from a modern standpoint, I, you know, again, I, I would like to start with Hamada and Fujinami and save myself hours of research, but I would <laughs> like to see kind of where things evolve from there because I don't, 
wrestling's gotten so small that it's also kind of hard to differentiate the junior heavyweight style from the heavyweight style. I think that's an interesting discussion to have. There's a, a lot that could be dug into here. Yeah, it's going to be real interesting. That's something that like sit down with a bunch of people and like pull open a, a spreadsheet or a chart and like a Zoom call. And like, all right, let's let's hash this out because like, are we going to have this go all the way back to Milnescaris? Because he did work in Japan a lot, but his style of lucha is completely different from what Hamada picked up on. You know, I saw a tweet today from Kenta Kobashi that he was rewatching a Jumbo Saruta versus Mil Mascaris match, which I believe in the tweet said that is what made him a fan. And quite honestly, I'm terrified at the idea of going back and watching a Mil Mascaris versus Jumbo Saruta match because, <laughs> you know, a brief aside, I've been watching a lot of Rick Martel lately, and it's you, you want to talk about influential wrestlers. Ricky Choshu is probably not in that conversation enough because, oh my God, like Jumbo, I think he debuts in 77. Jumbo from 77 to 84 is capable of having great matches, has great matches here and there, and is for the most part good. Once Choshu comes into the company, though, and completely changes the house style of All Japan, it is this light switch night and day difference of like, oh, that's Jumbo Saruta, one of the best wrestlers of all time, right this way, sir. Like, as soon as Choshu comes into the company, he works in a completely different way, and I reference that because I I've been watching uh, Martel versus Jumbo. They had two matches in 84, one in the AWA, which I thought was all right, and then one in All Japan, which was awesome, and I recommend people go seek that out of, I think it's July 31st, 84, Martel versus Jumbo. Rick Martel looks like one of the best baby faces ever by the end of that match. They wrestle again in 85 after Choshu's coming to All Japan and Jumbo has ditched all this bullshit grappling stuff. He's no longer a wrestler. Like Jumbo just wants to hit Rick Martel and it's awesome and I love it and I love the change that Choshu brings to All Japan at that point in time. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing to think about. Like for one, my brain is blown about Kenta Kobashi caring about a Mil Mascaris match <laughs> when every single Mil Mascaris <laughs> match I've seen has been absolutely dreadful. <laughs> Uh, not a wrestler I will be considering for the greatest wrestler ever project. Not coming close, not even making my vaunted shortlist, not even, <laughs> did not even cross my mind case. So we had one last question that I wanted to get to for this week. And this one kind of goes off of something that we said that we were talking about last week. And case okay, so this was, this might surprise you. This might not but this is about King of the Hill, the most important cartoon I would wage since uh, I think it's more important culturally. Actually, I can't say that about South Park, but more important culturally than uh, Rick and Morty and all of those things. So this question, I'm trying to pull up the exact one so I get their Twitter handle right, comes from James at N-I-S-S-E-N-J-C. What is the most accurate or specific part of king of the hills portrayal of texas in the 90s or 2000s i'm sorry case a lot of these questions are my are my uh wheelhouse but i i i made a comment about it being texas but it's very much also a critique of suburbia so like well how do you feel like that it embodied a period of suburbia in america yeah, it's funny we got a really good response to our king of the hill conversation last week uh mixed feelings that that's what people took away from the show but people did seem to like it so I'll, I'll i'll go with it i mean i did not grow up watching south park i had not seen an episode of south park until my 
first week of my freshman year of college, Comedy Central was running an every South Park ever episode, every South Park episode ever marathon. And me and my three roommates were like, well, we don't know each other. We don't know this city. Let's sit here and watch South Park for a little bit. It has, to me, even though I'm, I know it's more influ- influential to the culture, it has nothing on King of the Hill for me. It's a show I grew up watching. It's a show I still love. And as I've gotten older, the show has really evolved in an interesting way because, you know, I obviously just have a better grasp of things right now. I think one of the more interesting episodes they ever did, and I think this kind of relates to Texas. I don't know. I've only been to the Dallas airport once is season nine, episode five, Dale to the chief where Dale rereads the Warren commission report. Yes. And is stunned that the government was right about who killed Kennedy. And Dale becomes increasingly pro patriotic throughout the episode. And it's always, it's just, it's stuck with me. It's like, man, that is, that is really good writing. Like there's just a bunch of funny stuff in here that Dale's character does that I really like. And I think it's, you know, partially Texas, partially suburbia, uh, par- partially, I think, really good a satire of American culture, which I think, you know, hopefully we could get back to doing because I think just America as a whole was a parody for four years. And now it's like, OK, we've all taken a deep breath. We can we can kind of rationally analyze some things that are going on now. And I think Dale to the Chief certainly had that power back in January of 2005 when that episode came out. Yeah, and that's also, like, one, like, when you, like, look at how conspiracies kind of foment, and, of course, in a lot of ways, the big conspiracy of the last uh, 50 years was the JFK assassination, at least for parts of American culture, and the idea that, like, he had the Warren Commission as a part of his kitchen table, making sure it wasn't wobbly was his copy of the of the Warren Commission, and then, like, Joseph completely going, like, Dad, I want you to read this to me, and he completely buys into it is such a really remarkable thing uh the episode that really kind of peeks out to me is the episode where i forget the exact title of this not really good at this guy in tiles case you might remember this it's the episode where they start paying peewee football and (laughs) it's such a bad experience for bobby that he goes and joins the soccer team and that is because hank brings his high school his high school coach to go coach them and his answer to everything is uh just take, take a salt, a salt tablet, tablet. <laughs> yeah yeah and, and like the the whole idea there because i was not someone who played at least this is like one that like personally resonated with me because i did not play football or tackle football american football growing up because i am five foot eight and 150 pounds <laughs> <laughs> and in texas i can do kicks and i can be a receiver but guess what if i'm gonna be a small receiver in texas what's gonna happen I'm going to get clobbered a whole lot, and I get concussions enough as is. I don't need to add that to it, but I played soccer, and it was always kind of one of those things that in the over-macho Texas, and it's still part of the culture there, was like, oh, you're less of a man for playing soccer versus football, and that was like really played up upon in that episode for for comedic effect, not like necessarily like attacking people's masculinity there, but it was just something that it resonated with me. It was like the first thing that kind of popped in my mind because the team's name was the breeze. <laughs> and I've played against my fair share of teams that were like the breeze or not. Um, and, and then of course, like the, the election episode where, uh, and this is a very big cultural thing, especially with like a certain generation of Texans, the one where George W. Bush gives uh, Hank Hill a weak handshake and he can't vote for him for that. 
I know a lot of Hank Hills growing up, and a lot of them really were like, you don't want to crush people's hands, Mike, but what you want to do is you want to give them a nice, firm handshake to know that you can trust them. And the idea that Hank Hill couldn't trust George W. Bush because he had a limp handshake. That notoriously the episode where Luann votes for the Communist Party, uh, later became a Twitter hero 20 years after that episode was released. <laughs> I had a priest growing up that was very specific about the way I shook his hand. I realized saying that out loud now that I need to make it clear that is all that happened was I had a priest that was just very specific about the way that I, I shook his hand and he taught me how to give a good handshake. That is all that happened. I want to make that abundantly clear. And the episode that you referenced was Three Coaches and a Bobby, season three, episode 12. Uh, my favorite line for that being uh, Hank complaining about soccer to Bobby and Bobby saying, why do you hate what you don't understand? <laughs> That's a great line. <laughs> I remember that line. I didn't remember it was my episode. Why do you, why do you hate they don't understand that? <laughs> so, yeah, it's an American institution. It is one of the funniest shows I've ever seen, even though the last few seasons are pretty rough. And it is on Hulu in America. If you would like to uh, watch some Michinoku Pro. Watch some Grand Hamada wrecks that I threw out here. And then at the end of the day, unwind with some King of the Hill. I mean, another great episode is the episode where uh, Bobby picks up smoking. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a good one. It's just an all-time, like, it's a, it, 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 it is something that, like, Mike Judge has done a lot of works that people think accurately portray periods of time. Silicon Valley, of course, with the tech boom. Uh, idiocracy everyone says that that's what the last four years were but the most resonant one by far is king of the hill and i think that's the one that most withstands the test of time like have you tried to watch idiocracy anytime over like the last few years no i've never i've never seen it. it it has its funny things but its humor is more an absurdity rather than actual satire which is what king of the hill does so well yeah i have been too busy i guess rewatching king of the hill and beavis and butthead which is one of the funniest shows of all time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did check the Dragon Gate official blog that they post everything in Japanese before it comes out in English. We do not have any cards for this weekend. So, okay, so I think that's going to do it. We went a little longer than I expected. I thought we were going to go 45 here, but we started talking about how COVID has changed us, Grand Hamada, talking about Mike Workers, talking about King of the Hill. Overall, I had a good time. This is I'm like okay one of the best it. episodes we've ever done. This was super fun. Yeah, so unless you have anything else you wanted to hit on before we get out of here, Chief, let's let's do it. No, it's late. I have to go to bed. Yep. Yeah, all right, so thank you all for listening. We'll be back next week with actual shows to review as they will be having two shows in three days in Kyoto KBS Hall. So at the very least, it's going to be a very pretty show, if even if the cards don't necessarily hold up. But that will do it for Case and I. You can follow the podcast at Open Voicegate. You could follow Case at underscore in your case, and you can follow me at Fujiheya, but for KSI Mike, and thank you for listening to Open the Voice Gate. We'll catch you next time. Take care.